and I add my welcome to that of Edwin's. It is good to be with you today. My name's Luke, if I haven't met you. Just before we get into that passage from James, a couple of things that are going on in our life together I didn't manage to share was, first of all, uh, I think some of you might have uh, seen on the Facebook group that we've just uh, now got audio recordings for Sundays via podcasts. If you're a podcaster, you can um, search for St Mark's Barrera and you should be able to hear the audio sermons uh, which might be more helpful for some than finding the live stream. We'll still continue to live stream, but uh, that's available uh, for you. Uh, also, to let you know about, uh, it shouldn't really affect this congregation too much, uh, because the last Sunday of November, which, does anyone know the date off the top of your head? I should know, but I don't. Uh, the 25th, 26th, 29th, there you go, uh, is we're going to have a combined service here at 10 a.m. Is it? It wouldn't be there, it wouldn't go. It's not the 29th. 26th, I think it is. Uh, 27th, any more, any takers? Any advances on the 20th? <laughs> okay, whatever. We'll be here, right? Okay, we, it shouldn't affect us. 27th of November. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was 26th. Okay, I should have written this down, shouldn't I? You'd be thankful to know the talk's got more notes than the announcement. Uh, the 26th of November, we'll have a combined service here for 8am, 10am and 6pm. We're going to give thanks for the year that's been. Think about the year ahead. Uh, I commend that to you. It should be a special service, a bit of a celebration service. Um, uh, but you'll hear a bit more about that in the weeks to come. Let me pray now and we'll get to the section that I actually do have notes on, uh, which is the talk that you've been hearing from Richard Murray. Father, we do uh, ask now as we come before this part of your word uh, that you will still our hearts and minds and you'll have us hear uh, the message that you have called us to hear by your spirit today, particularly around uh, this, uh, this delicate uh, question of the relationship between faith and good works. And we ask that you'll help us uh, to have clarity in this space and humility and help us not just to have a theoretical knowledge uh, but one that can actually put what we hear today into practice. Amen. So we are in James chapter 2, a passage that we only had half of it read out. Uh, we'll be looking at the whole passage today. It's a passage uh, full of a bunch of practical stuff and also uh, theological stuff. And I think, in fact, that's the point of the passage. That is that theology, true knowledge of God manifests itself in practical action. Theoretical Christian faith, James is going to argue, is not genuine Christian faith. That seems to be the point that James is making in this passage and the particular concern in this passage, uh, in this section today, is around this practice of favouritism. And it's addressed uh, in the opening verses of the chapter. My brothers, do not show favouritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of like a heading for the whole chapter, the command summary. Favoritism is not compatible with faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's the big point and that's what we're going to explore today. I've kind of got three headings that we're going to explore it under, roughly uh, lined up with the structure of the passage. First of all, what is favoritism? Second, what's wrong with favoritism? And third, why is it incompatible with faith in Christ? And then we'll have a bit of time looking at how uh, we can seek to pursue the alternative at the end. So first of all, what is favouritism? 
Uh, James gives a very practical, relatable, perhaps, example of what favouritism might look like in a community. Uh, we see there in verse 2, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favour on the man wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Um, when I um, first came to this church, before I started actually, and I was chatting to Cecilia Abbott, who many of you know is our office administrator and a long-time member of the church, she said, Luke, you know what I reckon you should do on your first Sunday? You should come into church and sit up the back with all these dirty clothes and see how people treat you. <laughs> I said, maybe not my first Sunday, but anyway. Uh, but her point was, you know, there's a, there's a point, you know, you can learn a lot about a community, about how people treat people who might look different. Uh, now, even though uh, in the ancient world uh, the situation was possibly different, maybe uh, the favouritism is not about looking up, looking around for men with gold rings, but there's different kinds of favouritism that exist. We can relate to it, can't we? We can relate to this kind of thing. There are people that we, we might look on with favour. Uh, we might be drawn to somebody's social status, their influence, their charisma, their personality, their wealth whatever it is, and we might distance ourselves from other people who might be unhygienic, difficult to talk to, might be socially embarrassing, maybe people who we can't get much back from. And I think not just in church, but we do this uh, in life all the time in different ways. And the interesting thing is the problem James is saying here with favouritism is that when we do this, particularly in a Christian community, what we do is we put ourselves in the positions of judges discriminating against others. We see there in verse 4, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's not that we've just become judges. It seems here judges with evil thoughts is like we've, we've put ourselves not just in the position of judge, but we've become like a corrupt judge who makes their verdict based on whoever gives them the most cash on the side. It's that kind of image, a corrupt judge. Now, what's interesting is when you read this passage, particularly in the 21st century today, the idea of um, a warning about favouritism and discrimination, in the 21st century, I think most of us are alert to this kind of problem, particularly in the Western world. Over the last century, uh, many movements have sought to eradicate various forms of discrimination from society, whether it's based on gender, ethnicity, race, sexuality, all those things. There's been a bit of a movement. The idea of discrimination, uh, collectively as a society, we kind of frown upon it. There's been that movement. But interestingly, the more that has been happening in the Western world, uh, the, the idea of discrimination being frowned upon... There's also been, Christianity has also been frowned upon, people of faith from the same people. I've been reading a book recently, I haven't finished it yet, um, by Steve McAlpine, you might have heard the book, Being the Bad Guys. Uh, he's exploring how it seems like almost overnight Christians move from being kind of respectable figures in society, maybe irrelevant figures, and then move very quickly now to become the villains. And he points out the great irony that things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that human beings are born equal and that that truth should be self-evident, 
he points out the irony that historically that hasn't always been the case. It hasn't been self-evidence. It has actually come from a worldview shaped by the Genesis account of creation where all of humanity is created in the image of God. And so the idea of discrimination based on external factors like race, wealth, social status, class, it actually comes out of an influence of the Judeo-Christian worldview, the fact that God has made people as his image bearers, that has actually shaped and formed much of the world, the, well, the, world, the, the, the Western world that's concerned with this idea of discrimination. That is, what we see here in James... Uh, we might think, well, that's just common sense advice. Don't show favouritism. That's what you teach your kids, you know, be, be fair and all those kind of things. It might sound common advice today, but it's actually revolutionary. It wasn't always the case, certainly not in all parts of the world. And still today, the idea of uh, that, that it's wrong to discriminate against people, that, that's a kind of a, that, that, this is not just common sense. It flows out of a living faith in Jesus Christ, which we're going to come back to. So this is the kind of favouritism we're looking at. We're going to think about it a little bit more, but let's think about what's wrong with it, which is our next question. Uh, sometimes when we think about the question, what's wrong with favouritism or discrimination in that kind of way, sometimes partly due to the part of the world we live in and the time in history, we just probably just feel instinctively it's just not right, it's just not fair. James actually goes deeper and helps us think about what is actually the problem with favouritism and discrimination, and he, and he gives a few examples uh, and the few problems that he identifies is when we favour things that the world favours, we're not mirroring the heart of God. He says in verse 5, listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonoured that poor man. Now, you might have spotted one of the paradoxes in this passage. It seems that this passage is against favouritism, and yet it seems to also suggest that God has his favourites, doesn't it? He favours the poor in the world. Is it equal or not, right? Let's break it down a little bit. We find throughout history that when you look at, uh, and you see it through the Bible as well and, and, and around the world, as a general trend... The Christian church has always been strongest amongst those who have been, relatively speaking, poor in the eyes of the world. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now... Key to see there, not many, not every. It's not exclusively, but there's a trend. Not many. Then he also talks. You know, might, might know in other parts. He talks about God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He talked about how uh, believers are like treasures in jars of clay. Now, why is this? Well, on one level, we can see that God builds His kingdom among the materially and socially and relatively socially poor in the world to teach the world that being part of God's kingdom is all about being completely and totally dependent on God and his mercy, not self-sufficiency, not good works. He uses it to, 
to teach and show that his kingdom is built on the self-sacrifice of his own son and building a people who are ready and happy and yearning to cry out for mercy. And so the problem with favoritism between the rich and the poor, when we do that, whether it's rich and poor materially or in different ways, it fails to mirror the heart of God and reflect his nature. And a second related problem is that when we do show favouritism, we're in danger that we might think we're being very loving when we show a particular kind of favour. We're loving people. Or we're showing, but when we show a particular kind of favouritism that we love some people at the expense of others, we might think we're keeping what James calls the royal law in verse 8. If you keep the royal law, love your neighbour as yourself. You're doing well. Right, But there's a danger when we show favouritism, we commit sin and we're convicted actually by the law as transgressors. And so what we, we hear in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, very well known, Jesus exposes the Pharisees, self-justification, relying on their themselves. You know, the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan is kind of responding to the Pharisees' desire to kind of limit the definition of who is my neighbour. The point of the parable is to be a neighbour is to be the one to show radical mercy without discrimination. So in the Good Samaritan parable, there were those who would pass by and in various different ways ignore uh, the beaten up man by the side of the road. The point is that everyone other than the Samaritan who's acted in mercy was actually casting judgment in different ways on the beaten up man. And the warning is very stark in James, verse 13, for judgment without mercy, sorry, for judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Stark warning, isn't there? There's a warning to those who aren't showing mercy but judging others. And then the phrase that follows is a little bit surprising, perhaps not unexpected. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It sort of just jumps out there. We are, I think, as Christians to take comfort in the fact that God, that, that, that mercy triumphs over God's judgment over us. We're very thankful, aren't we, that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment over us, that we are not judged as we deserve. We are to take comfort of God's generous and abundant mercy shown to us. But we cannot ignore this warning. This, this, remember, this letter is written to Christians. We cannot ignore this warning also to be very careful if you're presuming upon the mercy of God while at the same time being unconcerned about showing mercy on others or casting judgment on others by showing favoritism in all these different kinds of ways, we should be very concerned. We should be concerned about the nature of our faith, which we're going to come to now. The third question, why is favoritism incompatible with faith in Christ. Why is James so concerned that his Christian readers don't show favoritism as they profess to hold on to the faith in Jesus? So the concern is that if someone is claiming to have faith in Jesus and there is no evidence of a changed light, then is it really true that this person trusts in the actual Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of scripture. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, 
Can his faith save him? Now, in church history, there has been a bit of debate around this section of James, so much so that uh, the great reformer Martin Luther found it very hard even to accept this part of the Bible as kind of on the same level as the rest of Scripture because, because of his journey where he, he could see so clearly the danger of a works-based salvation, he found it that this part of the Bible seemed to blatantly contradict Paul's teaching in Romans about how we are justified by faith alone and not by works. In fact, Paul seems to use the exact same example from the Old Testament to make the opposite point when he talks about Abraham being justified by his faith and not by his works. Paul does it and then James seems to flip it over. Whether they had a bit of a rivalry, James and Paul, I don't know. It's it's almost like they kind of respond to each other. But we also know from the early church fathers, from from church history, that the apostles themselves, that they didn't have an issue with these two parts of of, of the teaching. James and Paul... They could be side by side, right? And it's likely they're both aware of each other's teaching. So what is James teaching us here in light of the rest of his letter and in light of the rest of the New Testament, particularly around the relationship between faith and works? First of all, he's not teaching us here that we are saved by faith plus additional works in the sense that there's this kind of like a box that you tick when you become a Christian and say, I'm going to sign up to the Christian faith, tick. And then when we tick that box, someone gives you another section on Christian rules and works. And you've got to make sure, okay, I'm going to tick that. And when I've got both of those ticked, now I know I'm saved. That's not what he's teaching. James is teaching us that genuine Christian faith will manifest itself in works that reflect the character of our loving Heavenly Father. And counterfeit Christian faith might say and do the right things on the surface, but actually not concerned in reality about the things that God is concerned with. Though you might have seen the coronation service earlier this year, incredible words in that service, incredible words in the hymns, incredible words in the Bible readings. I've got no idea where people stood with God, despite the words that were being said, promised, declared, sung. The examples often given, I don't even know if it's true. Someone who might know this, maybe people who have been doing youth ministry or something might be able to tell me if this is actually a true story, but the whole Niagara Falls guy on the rope, who's heard that story? Tight rope, you know, faith, anyone heard that? Don't tell me I'm telling it for the first time. Good. Okay, good, thank you. This is like the, this is the oldest story. It, it, it sounds good, so I'll, make, I'll tell you what it's going to yeah. So it sounds like a good story, but maybe it's true. But, you know, the, the story with the, the tightrope walker going across Niagara Falls and building up a big cheer squad, cheering him on, and then he's, do you think I can do it with this? Do you think I can go across with this? Wait, yeah, yeah, you can do it, you can do it. And then, do you think I can do it with someone, carrying someone? Yes, of course you can. Who's going to hop in with me? No one, right? No one says I'm going to do it. The point is, right, there's a difference between, so yes, you can do it. No, I don't think you can do it. It's a little bit like Ash sitting on the, um, the chair. There's a difference between saying, yeah, yeah, it'll hold me. But you know the difference between faith and works in those situations. The authenticity of someone's actual faith is demonstrated by putting that faith in action, not merely words. That's the point he makes in verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without works and I'll show you faith from my works. And there's an example there, verse 15. If a brother 
or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Now, on a personal level, it's just worth acknowledging, I feel this is an area that I struggle with as a pastor, and I know people have different struggles, but this is one of them, that I'm convinced, right, that the most important thing for people to hear is the good news of Jesus, and that only by trusting in the good news of Jesus will anyone come to know eternal salvation, right? But I confess that I can find myself from time to time, I don't want to use the word narrowly, but sometimes narrowly focusing in on this central truth that I can be in danger of being like the passerby in the Good Samaritan parable, being like the person here who might say words that might mean well, even I'll pray for you and I forget to pray, right? doing nothing about someone's material needs. And I've been so encouraged and rebuked at times as well by many people in this congregation, in this particular area, as, we, as I see so many people from our church putting practical care into action in different ways, yearning to show practical care. The point James is making is that for those who claim to trust Jesus but that their lives look exactly the same. Not just that their lives look exactly the same, but their lives actually resemble this kind of concern for one group over another. It should be a concern of ours. It should be cause for concern. Not because we're not doing enough for our salvation. That's really important. Very important. If we, if we see that our lives aren't any different to the world around us. In fact, we're showing particular kind of favouritisms that are on view here. The concern is not that we're not doing enough for our salvation, but that we haven't actually been gripped by Jesus. the, The Jesus that we actually claim to worship, we might be worshipping a different Jesus. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, someone in the earlier congregation mentioned, asked ask me an important clarification question about the difference between a favouritism and friendships with people who are like-minded. Now, it's important to acknowledge that there are people who you'll share common interests and people you'll click with more than others, right? You might find things that you enjoy doing, humour that you enjoy. That's part of the way that we've been made and wired as, as human beings and we shouldn't be guilty that we find some people... Uh, more naturally friends than other people. That's not the point that James is making here. The point James is making is the way in which as a community and as a family we exclude some by showing our favouritism to others. It's a different kind of thing, right? So imagine if you're in a family, in a household, and this is not true in my household, so I'll be very careful <laughs> what I say here. You've got like, four children, right? Maybe one of the children you might enjoy talking about Star Wars with, right? Just hypothetically. Just um, imagine I was really into Star Wars, hypothetically, right? And, you know, and I'm talking, you know, and I, I find myself talking, and I kind of go, gee, whoever your name is, Max, I don't know, hypothetically. Um, you know, then, and then I kind of go, 
there's a difference between saying I enjoy talking about Star Wars with Max. Oh no, I should talk about Star Wars with all the kids. It's not really going to work, I don't think. And then excluding everyone else, they, you go sit somewhere else because you're not into Star Wars, other kids. It's kind of we know that's wrong, right? Showing that kind of favoritism where you're actually treating people like they're less valuable members of the family. Because there's a, we know that, don't we? There's a difference there between the instinctive things that we might connect with and actually honouring and respecting and bringing people in to the household, the community that Jesus is building us in. I hope that's helpful because it's not, we shouldn't feel guilty if we have friends but we should be very aware of the family and the household dynamic and the people we seek to honour. Well, to round out this chapter, James gives these examples, two examples of saving faith from the Old Testament. And we won't have time to go into the whole backstory, but the first example is from an Old Testament hero, Abraham, probably like like, an equivalent of like a superhero for some of the first century Jewish people, Abraham, a great man of faith. The second is probably from an Old Testament nobody, Rahab. Interestingly enough, mentioned in the genealogies in Matthew, both of them, Abraham and Rahab. It's kind of like to round out this chapter, there's a rich and a poor distinction is being eradicated by these two examples, Abraham and Rahab, both standing right before God on the basis of their faith and their radical obedience to that faith. How can we, as a Christian community, be a community that is rich in mercy? Rich in mercy, welcoming those without showing favouritism or triaging our care to people who offer us something. How can we be a community of favouritism, of radical love and mercy. How are we to do this, right? Now, if you've been um, at church for long enough or been a Christian for long enough, you'll know that the solution, if you've tried it enough times, is not, we must try harder. (laughs) Now, that said, a bit of effort can sometimes be an underrated circuit breaker, so just... Just put that aside. So sometimes I'm not saying no effort. But let me finish with a couple of phrases that I'd like to zoom in on that we can easily miss out on if we read very quickly over this passage. James makes a profound but very obvious point in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Notice that phrase and that word there, shudder. It reminds me of kind of like a gag reflex almost, like a a, a fear and anxiety, something that kicks in when something's terrifying. This is the demons, right? They know stuff about God. They probably know more things about God than we do in terms of facts and stuff, right? But they shudder. Their response is, "Uh -uh, no, I don't want anything to do with that. You see, when our faith is exclusively just in stuff we know and think and hear, even our theology, right, it can lead us to privately shudder at the idea of God, shudder at the, at the idea of actually joyfully serving him, shudder at liking and loving the things that our Heavenly Father loves. Verse 20, 
And so if someone who's grown up knowing a lot of things about God, knowing a lot of things about Jesus, but perhaps privately isn't particularly enamoured by Jesus, well, it shouldn't be a surprise if this so-called knowledge doesn't manifest itself in these works that James describes. The second phrase I wanted to return to is the opening one. My brothers, do not show favouritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that word there? Not shudder, but glorious. Captivates the idea of splendour, magnificence, beauty, wonder. Not abstract and theory. To hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ is not simply signing off on the doctrines of the Anglican Church of Australia. As interesting as they are, by the way. (laughs) The glorious Lord Jesus Christ describes an attraction to the beauty and to the splendour of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, you can have a course like like Alpha, for example, or Christian Explorer, one of those courses, right? And how can it be that you can have two people in that course, both who arrive not knowing anything about God both hearing the exact same information, two different reactions, right? One is seeing the glory and beauty of the gospel and being drawn to it, being excited by it, being empowered by it. And the other person, the more they find out, the more they, no, I don't want any of this. This is, this is too much. This is going to change my life too much. Faith trusting in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ is what enables us to be that community of mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks that you have called us in your Son, uh, that mercy has indeed triumphed over judgment. And we ask that you'll help us to be people who continually not shudder at your glory, not shudder at who you are, but marvel in it, and so reflect and radiate that in the way that we are as a community. We ask that you'll help us to be a community that marvels so much in your sacrifice and your love for us that it transforms who we spend time with We ask that you'll help us to mirror, mirror your concern. Help us to be a community that is not dependent on ourselves, but cries out for your mercy. And help us to be a community that can help one another in this. We ask this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen.